gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. Um, I'm very excited to be here. I'm very excited for all sorts of the obvious reasons. Um, We're recording this actually on Monday, just in case we run into some news stuff that overtakes us or whatever. People can level set recording this Monday afternoon. And we had to record this at a special time because we have a very special guest at a very special time in, 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 in his life. We have my audio doppelganger, Longtime uh, friend and occasional, more than occasional uh, substitute host of The Remnant. And he has got a uh, new book out. That's by the time you hear this, well, it's coming out this week. And one of the things, I'll just be blunt, um, I'm, I, I want to help in any way I can to goose uh, pre orders of this Ooh. book. We can either use the feather or the whole animal. <laughs> but uh, it, I, want, I want this to go well. So, uh, it is brother, uh, Chris Starwalt has a new book out broken news. Why the media rage machine divides America and how to fight back brother Starwalt. Welcome back to the remnant. Well, this is the big two zero, uh, as, uh, the, as your surf, your AEI surf guy, uh, told us, uh, that this is the big two zero. So it is, a, it is a perfect occasion uh, to do a cool thing, which is to be here for the 20th and plug the book. And I'm very grateful. So, um, as you know, because I know you listen to this podcast on occasion, I, I generally ask authors of new books the following question to catch them off guard, because you will not get asked this on your cable news hits. What's your book about? I hope my book is about connecting Americanism to American journalism and trying to tie those things together. It's funny for me. I think one of the reasons that you and I have uh, always gotten along and one of the things that I, I admire in you is that you came from a newspaper family, right? Because mm-hmm. your dad was in the biz. Mm-hmm. And I grew up, you know, I had my first newspaper job when I was 17. And the news business is supposed to be fun, right? Right. And it's not supposed to be over serious. I'm staying in, a, I'm in New York. I'm staying in a hotel uh, that's just down from the Daily News Building, the historic New York News Building right here. Uh, and I'm, you know, as I walk around these blocks in search of delicious uh, meats to eat, uh, I find, you know, you're, you're stumbling over the great press history of New York here. And, uh, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be exciting. And what I hope is that this book is not, uh, a Jeremiah against things and it's not a thunderous denunciation, but a call to a kind of rebalancing, uh, that says, we have special obligations as journalists, and we have special obligations as news consumers, as Americans. That should be in the context of having fun and it being exciting and interesting, uh, but not too much, right? So uh, a, a call to a new balance. So fun fact, the Daily News building, uh, for listeners who don't know, is on East 42nd Street. It's got you, but many of you have seen it because I believe the first Christopher Reeve Superman movie, it is the headquarters <clears throat> of the Daily Planet, and there is a giant, giant spinning globe in the lobby. And fun fact is that uh, my dad's office, until I was about, I don't know, 10 years old, was in the Daily News building. And I used to, whenever That's my dad, so cool. dad took me to work, um, which was often, um, uh, we would go past the, the, the spinning globe. And, you know, and his office sounded like an old-fashioned newsroom because there were all the AP teletype 
things chugging along and there were everybody pounding on typewriters and there was lots of cigarette smoke and it was a cool, fun place for a little kid to show up. I had, I had no reason to become uh, a journalist. My sister had worked for a short period of time as a newspaper reporter, but my father was a coal executive. No one had ever been a journalist in my family ever. I had no reason to become a journalist except for in need of a summer job uh, in trying to avoid having to wear a paper hat with a dancing hot dog on it. I uh, went begging for a job at the local newspaper and I write about it in the book. When, you, when I walked into that room, it was heaven, right? The people were profane and ill-tempered. <laughs> the attitude that it was, it, you know, people, you, we tell our kids like, find your tribe, find your people. Uh, and at age 17, I walked in and, and here, as you say, uh, in those days, it was a, not a dot matrix, but the kind of line printer that mm-hmm. zing, bang, and it would go back and forth in this huge printer in the front of the newsroom that was going and there was a bell on it uh, that would ring when there was a new dispatch from the AP and it just felt like, I don't know why it felt so good to me, but it felt really, really good. It's, it's a, I, I, I'm a stickler. I call it a vocation because I think that journalism is like being a teacher or being a firefighter or whatever, which is, it's hard to do and it's not very remunerative when you start. <laughs> uh, so you have to want to do it. The voce, you have to be called to want to do it. And I, in fact, think that the professionalism, the professionalization of journalism has been a big problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all the J school and all the masters and, doc, you know, if you're getting a doctorate in journalism and you're not teaching, what are you doing, folks? Like, come on. So the all of this stuff, I think there, there is a place where journalism, American journalism, correctly understood, is a, is a different kind of job than most. Uh, that comes with different privileges and uh, different responsibilities. But I think it still needs to be vocational, not professional. Yeah, so this is something I've talked about a lot. And and then our our friend and colleague, Yuval Levin, and I should say supervisor, at AI wrote about it a bit in in Fractured, I think it was in Fractured Republic, or maybe it was the one before that, about um, there's this thing that people don't like sort of understand about American media, that America journalism kind of, because Americans like, we don't have to get into the whole, what is it, the virgin and the dynamo thing, but Americans like technology. And we tend to think that like technology solves all sorts of problems. And there's a lot that makes America great about that, right? We solve a lot of problems with technology. Um, But there's some problems that actually aren't solved by technology because they're not necessarily problems. And so with the rise of the telegram or the telegraph and then radio and then really television, the American press got seduced by this idea that journalists could be disintermediated, right? And that you could just tell people the objective facts, right? Walter Cronkite used to end his nightly news broadcast, and that's the way it is, right? And it was this idea of you are there, and and therefore there's no judgment or interpretation. And and what led what, what this led to was this cult of objectivity, where the reporters were expected to take out all of their biases and all of their priors and instead just report facts. And the problem with that is that that's really hard. And it's very easy to convince yourself that you're doing that when in fact you're not, particularly when you get an institution that gets a lot of groupthink. So if you look at the newspapers in, the, in say, the UK, they never bought into that. And so you have 
newspapers that do good journalism, right? You know, the Telegraph, the Times, even the Bolshevik Guardian, you know, all of them, they do good journalism, <laughs> but you know where they're coming from, right? You know that certain kinds of stories are going to get much bigger play from a different angle from, say, the Guardian than they are from the, the Times of London, because one's sort of socialist and one's, you know, Tory or whatever. And because the New York, because the, the American press got so high on its own farts of a, uh, objectivity, they convinced themselves that they were being unbiased. And, and the easiest way to let your biases in is to not be aware of them, right? Is to not know what your priors are. And I think that one of the things that this professionalization of American media, one of the reasons why it's gotten into trouble is that the media thinks it needs to explain the world to everybody on their terms. And they don't realize how much resentment that has fostered because it was so loaded with ideological stuff. And Anyway, we could go far down that rabbit hole and you're free to take it or leave it. But um, we should probably get back to the book, even though some of that play, uh, plays into the book. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a big part of it. What do you think, rather than me saying what's broken, what do you think is broken? Well, let's, uh, let's, stay, let's stay where, where you brought us. The book takes you through basically the post-road, uh, Ben Franklin uh, the, and the founding in a, in a quick hurry-up history to get up through the telegraph. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that changed the most for us is that when you and I came into the business, we were still facing substantially the challenges. Like I started as a full-time professional uh, journalist in 1997 at the princely sum of $250 a week. Uh, that's, that's the cheddar right in my pocket, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> but the challenge in those days was still to get enough information to the people who wanted it, right? Because you had to print it out and you had to get, and, and the challenges of obtaining the information and delivering the information to people was still the paramount thing. Uh, over the next, between 1990, let's say 1997 and 2005, there was a massive earthquake and it disrupted all of this because it ceased to be, can we get enough information to people to surplus, right? We have this, this profusion of news, all every people swimming in it everywhere that it became in instead of being hard to get, uh, as it had been, uh, it was, let's use the example of Sunday shows. So in, in the days of your, uh, networks had Sunday shows to, uh, meet FCC requirements for, uh, having public service television. And they were widely watched because where could you hear a politician talking about the events of the week? Where could you hear people breaking down the political news of the week? Well, uh, we're not experiencing a shortage of that, <laughs> of that right now. That it, we're, we, You don't have to go looking. As a matter of fact, you have to actively avoid it. If you want to avoid, especially with political news, if you don't want to swim in it, you have to actively avoid it. Unfortunately, uh, now, according to Pew, 15% of Americans say they read or consume no news from any kind of outlet, television, anything, uh, in the previous week. That's up from 3% like five years ago. So that's a, it's increased fivefold uh, as more and more Americans drop out of this. I think the bubble that inflated uh, after Pearl Harbor created a false expectation for journalism uh, and what it could be. And, you know, the fathers of modern journalism, guys like Ernie Pyle uh, and Edward R. Murrow, um, submitted their copy during the Second World War to censors. 
right? They wore uniforms, marched with the troops. Uh, it, uh, Ernie Powell did. But the modern journalists who are their heirs would, would never submit to such a thing. And we can remember during the post-9-11 wars how this was a huge issue. Like, can they be embedded? Uh, and during the Second World War, of course, these guys are filing their dispatches with army censors. Uh, and the writing was us versus them in a very clear way. But this created, like a lot of things, the war created a, 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 a new modern concept of what journalism was going to be like. And you could say that the end point for that, you mentioned uh, Cronkite, maybe that's Tet 1968, right? Maybe that is Cronkite when he comes out against uh, the Vietnam War. And I don't know what the end point for the bubble is, but the bubble burst. But for journalists, you know, the distorting effect, effects of Watergate, for example, and how this was the this the, the heroic journalist stuff uh, that was I'm sure was all part of it. I think the problem that we have now, among, so I think there's two sets of issues that the book uh, addresses, or I hope addresses. On one side, it's the business side; it's the motivations for news providers, right? What do these what What are the motivations for these companies in an atomized world? And of course, the motivation for these companies is in 1973 something like two-thirds of the country was watching one of the three major network newscasts in the evenings. So the incentive was to broadcast. You had to have a broadcast that Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, Northerners and Southerners, roughly thought, if not fair, was aspirationally fair, not insulting. Uh, So you had to have something that you could sell to Chevrolet uh, and the good people of Procter & Gamble as a product that would be competitive. So you're going for a third of the country, roughly, if you're one of these networks, to today, where on a big night, Fox News primetime will have 3 million viewers, which is a pittance, right? This is uh, a a fraction of what that is. So the shift goes from broadcasting to narrowcasting. You become dependent on a very narrow stack, right? It's The chips are tall, but it's a narrow stack. And uh, if you displease that audience, uh, if you tell them things they don't want to hear, they may leave you. Uh, I did a lo- I spent a lot of time thinking about the Washington Post and researching around the Washington Post, and they were the great example of this. They were lagging everybody on the left media uh, during the Trump era until there was a media scholar that, that said, not disapprovingly, that the Post had finally learned how to optimize for anger. <laughs> And they got into what the media scholar Andre Mir calls post-journalism, right? Where it's an emotional connection with your audience. It's a, it's a bottom-up emotional connection with your audience where you become part of their identity and cultural place as opposed to we have the information and we're giving it to you. So there's that side of it. On the journalist side, I, I, I put it this way. I agree with what you say about the failures of uh, impartiality and fairness uh, in the in the toot sniffing era uh, of the big uh, what do we call them? what are we supposed to call them now prestige uh, prestige journalism outlets uh, leg- the legacy press legacy media uh, yeah. It, yeah, legacy media uh, populated by globalists those things are were true but I think now we have a different problem which is the journalists no longer even want to be aspirationally fair. And that they say aspirational fairness is the problem, that both sidesism is the problem. And I think we're seeing a big pushback at places like The Times and at The Post, uh, where the adults are saying, 
no, 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 no. You're not going to attack your colleagues on Twitter and we're not going to uh, run people out on a rail because they said something that you didn't like somewhere. So I think there's a little pushback, but I think you know how much I love hypocrisy. I'm pro-hypocrisy. One of my favorite thing, my favorite pieces ever written was William Raspberry, uh, 30, 40, 40 years ago, probably now, wrote a column called In Defense of Hypocrisy. And it starts out with the great Rochefoucauld quote, hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. It is true that uh, marginalized communities will not be represented appropriately in the press. It is true that certain views and certain areas, you know, I, I there's a, a very impressive reporter named Daniel Flatley uh, for Bloomberg News, who I think does a great job. Uh, but I'm really mad at Daniel Flatley because he ruined one of my best lines, which is that I am the only person I have ever met in the national media from Ohio County, West Virginia. Uh, so Daniel Flatley really screwed that one up for me because uh, now there are two. Um, but the groupthink and the that kind of bias is always going to be a problem and all of that stuff. But trying to be fair, aspirationally fair, right, that we're going to give it a shot, that that's what we think. I loved the old Fox mantra, fair mm-hmm. and balanced. And people say, oh, fair and balanced. Blah, 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 blah. And the whole, I, to my understanding of fair and balanced, when Fox still held that high, was that, yes, certainly Fox, no, no one could have said, I wonder, I wonder where the Fox News hosts, uh, the primetime hosts are coming down on this. I don't, I don't think that was ever the thing. But the idea that, well, I mean, you were there before I was, but the sensation I got when I got to Fox was that the, the conservatives in America were so relieved to have some place on television that didn't condescend to them that actually allowed that conservatives might be okay sometimes and that they might be right and that their point of view were points of view were uh, there that they were so relieved that fairness sounded good over time though what happened and I think happened and it's not just this is not a book about Fox uh, but over time what happened was viewers got so and, and viewers and consumers got so used to not just news that was aspirationally fair, felt fair to them, but they wanted it to be crooked the other direction, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, That Fox viewers became intolerant of people like you or me who would say, and you know, you and I operated operated in in different spaces there, but still I always saw you as a person like Charles Kay, who would say, yeah, the Republicans blew it on this one, or I disagree with the Republican president on this one. I got to say, right? Mm -hmm. And what was considered a breath of fresh air in at the turn of the century by t- two decades later sounded like cuckoldry and uh, defeatism. Yeah. So I want to be clear because I, I think you're absolutely right. I was talking about sort of like, you know, on HBO now there's this House of the Dragon, which is a prequel from a different era of Game of Thrones that takes place before. Oh, my Kevin, right? goodness. I'm not going to get into the weeds on that. But my point is, is that the problem that I was describing was the pre-internet problem. Yeah. And this obsession with this idea of ob- objectivity, which is different, I would argue, than fairness, um, but like this idea that there is no other legitimate interpretation, it's sort of like the disinterestedness that Walter Lippmann and the progressives would talk about as if like journalism is a science and either you're with the science or you're not with the science, that kind of professionalization and that sort of caste mentality kind of took over journalism so that by the late 80s, 
you don't you don't talk about it in the book, but um, do you remember the Fred Friendly seminars? There were these things on on okay, they were on public television. They were really great. And they were the series of seminars. Often the moderator or the, the facilitator was like, um, I think it was um, Randall Kennedy from Harvard, but they had different ones. And they would get all these people from for on different questions, from different ideological perspectives, different professional places, and they would walk through scenarios about, you know, hypothetical sort of like red team kind of scenarios about different things. And there's a famous one where... Um, they're asking all these guys, there's some military guys there, some politician guys there, some journalists, and they're saying, okay, imagine that you're in uh, this fictional, it's basically Vietnam, but this fictional, uh, you know, Asian country, and we're at war, and you're a journalist covering it, and you get word that, from a reliable sources, that, a, um, that an American platoon is going to be ambushed. Do you tell the American military what you know? And I think it was Peter Jennings says, you know, he agonizes about it, but he says, ultimately, I, I, I think I'd have to. And then and he's Canadian and he's Canadian. And then Mike Wallace chimes in and scolds him and says, no, 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 you're a journalist. You're not there as an American. You're there as a journalist. And Jennings capitulates and says, you're right. I'm, and sort of acts like he was ashamed for ever thinking that he would tip off an American platoon that they're about to be ambushed. And then this military, this colonel from the U.S. military, or general, I can't remember, but uh, you sort of playing that role. He says, look, I have nothing but contempt for that position because three days later, you're going to get pinned down and be wounded, and you're going to demand that American troops come and rescue you. And for me, this was always, and I remember writing a lot about this during the onset of, uh, right immediately after 9-11, like, that was the last gasp of this stuff where like ABC yep. news thought it was inappropriate for journalists to wear American flag pins. And I would oh, write, it was a whole huge debate about yeah. the dumb flag pins. And there was, and I would contrast it with the point that you made earlier about people like Ernie Pyle, um, uh, who for listeners who don't know was a revered wartime correspondent, um, who, when he died and a hell of a writer and a hell of a writer. And he wrote for Scripps Howard news service where my dad worked. And um, my dad used to have a whole bunch of his, like, raw copy that he saved oh, cool. somewhere. I have no idea where it is now. But um, anyway, that was the sort of media, that was the criticism that the right flourished in, right? That was how Rush Limbaugh came along, where it was, look at these guys, these smug Olympian guys who are telling you what you can and can't believe, what is and isn't true. And for an enormous amount of time, that's how the Media Research Center came along. That's how accuracy in media came along a big chunk of what it meant to be a conservative was to try and craft a different narrative or to poke holes in the official line that came from basically five media institutions within two square miles of each other in Midtown Manhattan. And just for record, you had that line blown about being from Ohio County, West Virginia. I've never been able to say I'm the only journalist I know. <laughs> only from secular <laughs> Jewish journalist from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Exactly. Uh, but, uh, Not even in your own building. And I think... That's what the original conception of Fox was, uh, was to be the yes. balance to that. And I remember yes. Britt Hume and Roger Ailes, they had this well-developed theory that unless there was some truly obvious, important news that had no ideological valence to it whatsoever that mattered, if it led on the New York Times and was going to be an example of agenda setting by the New York Times, 
Fox would counter-program. And I think that was a valuable thing in that news ecosystem. The problem now is that the counter-programming is the only programming for millions of Americans. And the nature of the counter-programming has become sort of bitter and populist and weird. Um, maybe not necessarily in all the news stuff out of Fox, but certainly on the opinion side. And so now you just have two tribes who don't even know what the other side is talking about. Well, I, yes, uh, 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 endorse. Um, I, I think the right lives in a space, understandably, like I grew up in a household where I can remember when, I forget which uh, edition of Time Magazine, we had always been a Time Magazine family. Uh, and I forget which uh, edition of Time Magazine came into our home and my father had a big brass trash can with sailing ships on it uh, in the library and where his desk was. And I remember he looked at it ah, and he threw it bang into the garbage <laughs> can. It, and he was he was a very gentle man. So it was it was noteworthy. And at that at that moment, we became a U.S. News and World Report mm -hmm. uh, household uh, and hating the media was a big part of his worldview and the world and the and the rights worldview which is it's a rigged game conservative voices cannot get in and by the way until the 1990s that was really really true that was almost entirely true yeah. right uh you had national review and then you had you know some other less influential conservative magazines but you know the washington times didn't come to be until the 80s. Mm -hmm. And then talk radio doesn't, I guess maybe I'll put it this way. It's a lot of fun to be Rush Limbaugh when you are, when you're it, right? When you right. are the, the the only one out there doing this stuff. It's not a lot of fun to be Rush Limbaugh when there are a million Rush Limbaugh imitators out there doing what you do. Right. When Fox starts in 1996, so 1996 is a big pivot year for the American news business because not only does Fox News come online, but the internet becomes the real thing, right? 96, 97 is when the internet really starts to be the internet. And the conservatives won, right? They won Tech, with the help of technology, cable news the and the internet and social media. Conservatives got what they said that they had wanted all along, which is news of their own. Right. Uh, a variety of opinions being represented. Don't like the New York Times. Here's 35 places that you can go to get your news and information. But they're still locked in the view. Many, many Republicans are still locked in the view, which is it's just it, we're underrepresented in this big legacy media. Let me tell you, the legacy media ain't a legacy media anymore. Right. The power of Fox News uh, in terms of as one central locus of media power uh, is probably it's exceeded only probably by The New York Times in terms of influence of the trickle down effect and where it goes and how it goes. And rather than saying, wow, we did it. <laughs> the the answer is instead that things are worse than ever. I mean, if I hear about Hunter Biden's laptop one more time. I'm going to fling myself from the top of the Daily News building. Not to, and, and that's not to say that what these news outlets did about Hunter Biden's laptop was, wasn't wrong. It was wrong, right? They, uh, so much so that they even had to admit it, that they had to, the Washington Post later would have to do a mea culpa and say, 
yeah, we should have run this down. We shouldn't have dismissed it. Uh, We were right to be cautious with it, but we should have run it down. Joe Biden knew, he knew that parts of that laptop were authentic, right? Mm -hmm. He absolutely knew, and he let everybody run, well, this could be Russian disinformation and da-da-da-da-da, and he let that all go, and that was groupthink and a big mistake. But it's not like people didn't hear about it. Mm-hmm. It's not like people didn't know that uh, his uh, the uh, the former vice president's son enthusiasm for uh, cocaine base uh, and the ministration of uh, ladies of the evening. This was not like uh, no one got to hear about this. And in fact, the coverage of that story on the right became coverage of what social media, Twitter, which almost no one goes on that has much smaller effects than the users believe it does because Twitter had banned the New York Post story about this. It was treated as some sort of mass censorship. If anything, that ban got the story a lot, a lot more news because that allowed right media to tell its favorite story, which is here they are silencing us. I've written about it a bunch, but like Band in Boston was one of the best marketing tools for a whole bunch of, of, of books going back to like Tropic of Cancer. I'm hoping someone will ban broken news. If we can just get people to ban, any ban of broken news will be warmly welcomed. Well, all right. So, I mean, because I, I, I think it's been, for, it's a bit strained, but it's sort of been banned at Fox. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, and so it's, so it's funny, I, you know, because Fox is the 800 pound gorilla in this conversation. I mean, it, we, we've, We've touched on the gorilla, but, Ooh. but we haven't we haven't poked <laughs> the gorilla. Uh, we haven't teased the gorilla. So, um, for the hand, the odds that anybody listening to this doesn't know this is are, are are slim. But you were the political editor, politics editor of for Fox News. You were its ranking pundit, Poobah, um, on on the daily basis, um, and uh, you were let go in the wake of the decision to to call Arizona for Trump. We don't need to relitigate all of that. But um, I was, so I laughed twice in the New York Times write-up that uh, Jeremy Peters did of you in the book. Um, And the first time I laughed was when Jeremy Peters wrote, um, and it was a generally very favorable write-up and all that, even though they outrageously said you were a columnist at the Bulwark. Um, Since corrected. Since Since corrected. corrected. Yeah, yeah, no, it's all fine. Uh, I mean, it's not a terrible thing to be. It's just not true. And since we're proud to have you at the dispatch, we would like the world to know it. Um, wh- the first thing I laughed was when Peter says something along the lines of, Starwalt actually has a, what might seem a counterintuitive theory for why Fox <laughs> News does things the way it does, to make money. And I, I turned to my wife laughing. I was like, can you believe Chris Starwalt thinks that Rupert, Murdoch might want to, Jack's notes, make money. <laughs> um, and just so I get it out there, the other thing that I laughed at was some Fox News spokeswoman said that Chris Starwalt's thirst for relevance uh, knows no bounds or something like that. And first of all, I thought it was a fairly crappy thing for Fox to corporately say. But second of all, I thought it was funny because as, as only you know better than I, you have been remarkably restrained in your, for want of a better word, Fox bashing. And you have plenty of nice things in the book to say about certain individuals at Fox. And you don't regret much of your time at Fox. But 
No. You regret how certain things have worked out. And if if they think that like you're trading on, you know, you're you're using the coin of fox bashing to be relevant, then um you need to go to a cambio vessel and exchange <laughs> your fairly fairly restrained and reasonable critiques for some harder currency. <laughs> I am grateful to Fox News. Um I and I want Fox News to be better. Um, when I testified in front of Congress, uh, January 6th committee, I came to praise Fox News and the good work that we did there. Uh, I came to praise, uh, look, here's, here's the thing. I have, I don't like to talk about this kind of stuff, as you know, mm-hmm. but I, know very well. I, I have, I have be, I have been the, that times piece, uh, I have been inundated with the hate again. Right. It's back to like not quite the post Arizona call hate, but like the real hate, like the, the stuff where you're like, oh, there it is again. Ooh, <laughs> I, I forgot that feeling. Um, and it's awful. Right. It's just awful. Now, on the other hand, now it doesn't last very long. It's just a little a little ding and it lights you up a little bit. Um, but what I and I certainly there have there are uh, a couple of people inside Fox who are just awful, you know, mm-hmm. just the worst. But I'm not. I don't. This this is not a book that says Fox News should go away and be destroyed. This is a book. You know, my wish for Fox News that it would would return to itself, right? That it would go back to a model that rightly understood a separate news division from an opinion division. That it would go back to a model where it prized its reporting, where it said, we have the best, you know, we did have the best decision desk in the business and we wanted to have the best decision desk. We liked that. That was considered to be a really good thing uh, to beat the competition. I believe that you can still find on Fox News uh, journalists working hard to do a good job and they're still there and they're working, right? Jen Griffin um, is fantastic. She works very hard. She does, you know, she tries to do it. I, 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 I'm, I will name some and uh, I, any that I forget, uh, I, it, it will be an omission on my part. But just for example, we know that when the team at Special Report goes to put, you know, that's a good half hour. The first, you know, before you get to the panels, that's a, you know, a good news show. They're, yeah. they're trying hard to do a good news show. Uh, Bill Hemmer and Dana Perino are trying to do a news show. As you say, uh, and we could, and I could go on, we could say the great Jillian Turner, Mike Emanuel. Uh, there's a bunch of people at the network who are trying to do a good job and uh, fulfill the old fair and balanced model. It's just that the network has made it really, really, really hard for them. Oh, and, and by the way, good, uh, to praise Fox, putting Shannon Bream in on Fox News Sunday, Shannon Bream, who's a conscientious journalist, uh, putting her in that show, that's a good thing. Those are good things. What we don't want, though, is... So everything is about... Most of these are prudential questions. Most of these are about not either or, but how much or how little. We will never reach a point where we discover perfect objectivity. Perfect objectivity is not out there. Aspirational fairness is good. And the model that works well for Fox and also for the country is when you have a news division that tries for every story to be fair, 
And then you have an opinion division that is distinct and separate. That was the old model. That's a good model. There's been too much bleed and there's been too, there's been too many hours of news programming lost over time that have been replaced either by opinion or uh, opinion masquerading as news. Uh, and so I want Fox to be better, not be destroyed. Yeah. I mean, my, it's, it, personally, it's just a, I'll, I'll put it as a personal piece, but a good example of the journalistic corruption for want of a better, and I don't mean corruption in, I, I mean, corruption just sort of like entropy and decay, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Decadence. Yeah. And I noticed it and I got, I would get really annoyed by it where I'd be on one of the news shows to do a panel, right? I'm there for my opinion, all that kind of stuff. And more and more you would see, well, here's what Tucker said last night, or here's where Laura came down on the, as if Tucker is a newsmaker, right? That like, like, you know, normally you would go to a clip of, well, here's what Joe Biden said, right? Or here's what Barack Obama said, or here's what Donald Trump said, and, or someone who's an actual politician or newsmaker in some way. And one of the ways they kind of, you know, sort of like, when Elaine gets really impressed with stuffed crust pizza because it's going to be years before they find a way to get more cheese on a pizza, they figured out a way to cram in more of the histrionic opinion stuff by turning it into news that then news commentators were supposed to respond to as if it was news. And I would sit there and I was like, why? Like, I've known Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson for a long time, and this was before the big drama with either of them, or at least with some of them. But like, I don't consider her opinions or his opinions any more newsworthy than my own, you know, and I would be no. ludicrous to run a clip. And here's what Jonah Goldberg had to say about, you know, the, the, the Bo Bergdahl thing, you know, but it's just like, and, and this was a way to sort of cram more of the opinion stuff in. And I think that this is something that's very hard to explain to people. And you probably know this. I know you know this far better than I do that for all of Roger Ailes' flaws, and I think we can all, we can sit here and we could spend a long time listing many of his flaws. <laughs> um, please was, please yeah, do not. Yeah, please but we, do this, not. Is yes. a, this is a family-friendly family podcast. So, yes. But he understood whether it was for high-minded reasons or purely cynical profit motive reasons or some mixture of the two, he actually understood that Fox News's brand depended upon the credibility of the news side. Yep. And I would argue, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that the current leadership doesn't give a rat's ass about any of that stuff and is in Wild West territory of if it keeps the ATM machine chugging along for another 15-minute increment, go for it. And so that's why I wanted to bring up this sort of, this controversial, this this uh, counterintuitive, as Jeremy Peters put it, notion that Fox is about the money. What? Tell me about like how you see profit over politics driving things. MSNBC always has had a slightly different experience because they're relying on NBC News uh, for their news content. Uh, and that has some negative consequences, but it has a lot of positive consequences for their their news news content, their reports, because you're not it, it's these are. NBC, you know, these are these are reporter the reporters they have in the field in doing that work. Not only do they have a lot more of them because of NBC News, um, but also those reporters aren't thinking about, oh boy, I hope I get a hit on Andrea Mitchell's show. They're thinking about they want to what do they want to do? They want to lead the evening news with Lester Holt. So they've always had a sort of a structural advantage on that stuff. CNN is right now going through uh, 
what I hope Fox would go through, right? I, I hope Fox would emulate what CNN is doing right now, which is cleaning its act up, getting rid of some voices that are not, you know, CNN and Fox having media criticism shows that focus on each other is pretty funny, right? It's <laughs> pretty so bizarre. It's pretty, it's pretty, you know, I, I know I've told you before that uh, my old idea about Fox should have a show called CNN on Fox, or a, <laughs> a separate network called CNN on Fox, where you'd get like Lou Dobbs uh, and Maria Bartiromo, like the Mystery Science 3000 folks, and you just show CNN and they can be like, this is garbage. I hate this. So look at lies. And then CNN could have its own where Brian Stelter just watched Fox and talked about how bad it was. And by the way, this is why I hate one of the things I hate, hate, hate about media criticism is because very often media criticism is either uh, the first refuge of the scoundrel, which we saw tons of in the Trump era on the right. Donald Trump clubs a baby harp seal to death. Uh, Turn on Fox. Well, you know, you see how the New York Times got it here. They said it was a nine month old harp seal. (laughs) This was almost a year old. Okay, this harp seal was nearly a full grown harp seal. And here we are treating it like it's an infant. This was almost weaned. Uh, So there's that part of why I dislike media criticism. And then there's the other part, which is it's boring and it doesn't do anything. Right. Brian Stelter's opinion about Fox News has no effect on what Fox News puts on air. It's not like uh, Suzanne Scott is going to say, boy, Stelter really zinged us on that segment. We better we better change our tune. And that's what happened with Media Matters for America. That's what happened with uh, uh, Newsbusters. It ceased to be a credible threat to police. And, and this is a, a subject that you, uh, I'm so pleased, spend a lot of time on, which is self-policing stopped, right? Yeah. Uh, you don't police your own side. You just police the other side and the other side doesn't care what you do because your people aren't watching that. Right. No. Whatever Don Lemon says about Fox and Friends, it's not like anybody's watching both shows. It's not like anybody's like, "Ooh, I'm going to have to rethink my morning show choice because of what Don Lemon said about Fox and Friends. So uh, all all of that having been said, Fox was starting from scratch and the news division at Fox News is really expensive to do well. It's really expensive and it's really hard to do well. Uh, Having enough bureaus, having enough reporters in the field, giving them the resources, paying them good money, all of that stuff uh, is really expensive. Do you know what's really cheap? Having blabbermouths in a room talking, right? We were the the cheap part. You and me, we we were part of the cheap side in the, the TV news saying is talk is cheap. Fox did not have an exist, wasn't building on an existing news organization over the course of 20 years, built up something of a news organization. But if you have to choose between reporting, this is the, not the Pollyanna-ish part of it, but this is the corny part of the book, but it's the part that is most important to me, which is whatever we do as American, there is no American journalism separate from Americanism. And if we don't practice journalism in a way that we know is healthful for the country, or at least not bad for the country, right? The limiting, the, so the profit motive says, be gross, be as gross as you, as you want, because the money's there. Fuel hatred, fuel division, uh, go for it and go, you know, rip the throat out of your enemy 
and uh, wave the bloody shirt. That's that's what the profit motive says. But as Americans, we have a special obligation. As American journalists, we have a special obligation, which is we can't do things that we know are bad for the country. And here's what we, no one can now say, no one can now say after 20 plus years in this new media space, I mean, we've, it's, and this is something I, 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 I focus on the rise of radio uh, and its effects a lot. I think we are very much in a period like that where we're learning a new technology that is radically different than other things before. But even so, no one could say that we don't know what the consequences of siloed, partisan, hate-filled, crappy journalism are. We know. And if you're doing it, you're doing a bad thing. And conservatives like to think that the market is the answer. And the market is the answer in a lot of things, right? The market is the answer because if it won't work, uh, when I hear people talk about the government having a truth you know, department uh, where we're going to fight disinformation, or I hear about federal subsidies for local news, I like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Don't distort the market in new ways. Don't come up with new market distortions. But the people who, uh, who is the uh, less, who is the, was it Les Moonves who was at CBS, Viacom? Les Moonves at a, uh, some, you know, one of these gum sucks uh, out. It was, you know, the, uh, some investors thingy. And he said, Donald Trump may not be good for the country, but it's great for CBS. Right. Keep going, Donald. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Everybody yucked it up. And it's like, go punch yourself in the face, Les Moonves. <laughs> uh, please leave the room. If you know that what you're doing is bad for the country, stop doing it. Mm-hmm. Roger Ailes, for his many, many, many flaws, for the rottenness of Roger Ailes, uh, was in a very sincere way an old-fashioned patriotic guy from Warren County or from Warren, Ohio, right? He was, there was an old-fashioned patriotism about that, his reverence for George H.W. Bush, uh, his, the, the kind of patriotism that I grew up with, not too far away from where he grew up. He had that. His love for America was real and unironic. And if you don't have that, then we can't do this. And that's just as true of the 1619 Project, or if not more so than it is of the cynical, crappy, primetime bait and hate uh, that they're doing on Fox. The idea that America is broken, America is bad, America is fallen, you know, it's, uh, this is wrong and it's immoral. And markets exist inside cultures. And our culture has to reject the people, whether it be Nicole Hannah-Jones or Tucker Carlson, whatever, to reject people who are profiting and advancing their own careers by fomenting hate and division in the country. And I just just want to point out the irony of the fact that this is something of a mantra for the both of us, right? And it's one of the reasons why we started the dispatch and all sorts of other things that are all high-minded and gitchy-gooey you know, mensch-like things that I believe in profoundly. But there's a profound irony that, like, you and I have been driven to this point. <laughs> because yeah. we, we have never been eat-your-spinach-wag-your-finger types about no. this stuff. And, I, uh, and I, I resent being, feeling like, really, it's going to fall on me and Starwalt to have make these kinds of well, points? When I know? tell producers, as I'm getting ready to do this book tour this week, 
as, as I t- when I tell producers, I say, now don't make me defend Fox because I will do it. You bring me on that show. If this turns into a Fox is the worst and we're the best, I um, I had I had an agent for about a week, and uh, when I got fired, and uh, I was asked to go on uh, All In with Chris Hayes. I remember, and and I was like, this seems stupid. I don't think I should go on cable news to talk about a piece about what's wrong with cable news. And the agent said, well, if you want to get it, if you want to get hired, you got to show that you can get out there and do this. I was like, all right, I'll do it, I guess. And I went on and it was Chris Hayes explaining to me basically why he was a better journalist than Sean Hannity. And I was so sputteringly mad while I was doing it. I didn't have the presence of mind to say, what do you want, a cookie? Like, you, <laughs> like congratulations, bro. You, you've, you've done it. Um, so much of what goes on is creating a permission structure for themselves by, just like in politics, the standard that they believe that they have to clear is not the conduct of their uh, uh, competitors, but indeed their own description of the conduct of the competitors. Uh, the idea that, so here's, here's what I know, and I, I know, I assume you agree, my experience with main, what, what we used to call the mainstream press with uh, was that overwhelmingly left, um, but mostly through ignorance and groupthink, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly through the fact that it had not occurred to them in many, many cases. And I, I delve into the book in a lot of research on why, right? There's a whole chapter basically given over to explain, because I hope liberals and conservatives read this, people of goodwill read this, and explaining to liberals, like, it's really there, right? Like the left bias in America's newsrooms is real. This is not an imaginary thing. And that these are not, though, mostly evil people, right? They do not get together and say, this is how we will do it. It is, they're all from the same places. They all went to the same schools. They all can't, you know, um, I use the example of the energy industry. So how do we figure that the people in the energy industry vote? Well, pretty Republican. Why do they vote pretty Republican? Did they come in as Democrats and then become Republicans once they went to work for Exxon or Arch Cole or whatever? No, they're from Kentucky. They're from West Virginia. They're from the Dakotas. They're from uh, Kansas, Nebraska, uh, Texas, and Oklahoma. Those are Republican states to begin with. The energy industry is more male than female, and men are more Republican than women and whiter. But, but, but. So here, so the, the what you're starting with is way more Republican. Mm. So even before the issue set comes in, you've already pre-selected. Well, the news business is more female than male, and the people are from the Acela Corridor. Uh, one guy from L.A., shout out David Drucker. There's always like one guy from L.A., uh, a couple dudes from Chicago, somebody from Miami, and then, uh, you know, uh, me and Daniel Flatley from, <laughs> from Appalachia. <laughs> And so what are you going to get even before the issue set comes in? And then layer on top of that, Columbia Journalism School and Syracuse and the, and the stack gets, the, the column gets narrower and narrower down to nothing. These people, you, one, one of your greatest lines of all time, I steal it frequently, is conservatives in the mist, right? They go at like Diane Fossey and say like, look at them. They, it's like they have human emotions grooming their children. Look at that. This is amazing. Uh, we saw a ton of that after 2016. Uh, I, my, my, uh, my joke is 
that no West Virginian was allowed to enjoy their biscuits and gravy in peace for two years because there was some foreign film crew, some national media outlet coming to your diner to say, why are you so angry? What, did, what <laughs> happened that you that you are such a racist, angry person? Uh, and all of that, all of that is true, but it's not malign. It, it, it is it is not malign nearly as much as it is ignorant. You know, I, I think that's absolutely right. I, I've often, in different contexts, invoked Thomas Sowell about this, right? So, because there's also a psychological thing, right? I mean, I, you're right about the base demographics of these places and are, are, are where, the, where, where people are drawn from to these institutions, but there's also a psychological aspect to it, which, again, is not about villainy, right? It's, it's, it's there is a reason why... There's a certain mindset that says, and I want to be, I want to be generous about this, because I think it's a good mindset. But there's a certain mindset that says, if I could just get the truth out to the people, right. I can save the world, or I can fix this problem, or I can do whatever. And that's why you tend to get, and and, and, and in many ways, it's a very noble thing because they're the people who most. My dad always used to put it in terms of most normal people don't go into journalism. And what he, right. what he meant by that was not like, it was not a pejorative thing and it wasn't a condescending thing, is that most people are wired to say, I want a job where I make money to help my family and then the stuff I do to fix the world is through charity or the church or my synagogue or whatever. But there's, there are some people who are born with a more missionary kind of orientation that says, if I can just bring the truth to the unvarnished masses, we can fix the world. And, um, and people who think like that get attracted to professions that let them do that. And so it's, you know, it's why people are more attracted to academia, particularly the way the institutions position themselves for the last 30 years. It's why people go into journalism. Is the, and it's an it's in the, where soul comes in, it's more of an unconstrained vision. It's this idea yes. that there's a truth, I know it, and all things are possible if I could just explain it to the world. I think there are some truly evil, villainous actors out there on the left and the right in journalism, but the overwhelming majority of the evil and malevolent things that are done in the name of journalism and the cause of journalism are done by accident. They're done because, you know, like, I honestly don't think, like, this, this makes some people very angry. I don't think Dan Rather knew the memos were fake. No. I think he convinced themselves that these concerns are, because... It was too too good to check. It was groupthink, and groupthink is just so unbelievably dangerous. You know, I often say, you know, there's this great book, Wisdom of Crowds. You know, and one of the things I took from it is that a group of very smart people with one dumb person in it will have a will will produce smarter results than a group with just smart people in it because the dumb person, like Tom Hanks in Big, says, "I don't get it." And all of a sudden, people are like, oh, crap, I got to explain this. Oh, oh, I, I didn't realize I was assuming this, you know, and that kind of thing. And like, I think libertarians, there are a lot of very, very smart libertarians. I'm not trying to say they're dumb, but they ask what a lot of progressives think is a dumb question, which is, right. why should the government be doing this at all? And if you have a libertarian in a room full of a bunch of policy experts and planners, someone should be asking that question, whether it's dumb or not. And in too many media, siloed media institutions, you just have everybody caught up in the hymnal and no one's, no one's, and the hymnal's the wrong word, but no one's just doing any gut checks saying, hey, you know, maybe we got this thing wrong. I, I, I want to be clear that I entered journalism 
for selfish reasons uh, only. <laughs> Definitely. No, no, no. Look, I have always, um, I think journalism is understood rightly as a vocation, patriotic kind of thing to do. It is service because it must be done, right? Uh, and at its best, what it does is hold powerful people to account, right? That our job is to, uh, what's this one? To afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. Uh, I'm less on the second one. That's charity's job to comfort the afflicted. But man, I'm, I'm all for afflicting the comfortable, right? Uh, and I am all for holding uh, the power, people, people who have or seek power, holding them to account. In the book, we talk about, we, what am I, running for office? Uh, I talk about in the book uh, about there's a study that shows that the cost of bond issuance for communities that have lost a newspaper goes up substantially. Oh, that's interesting. We're talking about serious economic consequences. Now, some of it may be corruption, right? Uh, some of it may be like, eh, nobody's watching. See, we're going to give my brother-in-law the contract on this one. See, and I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But in addition to that, these communities are not going to be as well run right? because they're not because there's nobody at the meeting, right? There's nobody like I once had to do sitting in the boring county commission meeting. Uh, though I will say, starting out in West Virginia, wasn't that boring. Stuff was pretty <laughs> wild. Uh, but that somebody has to be there to see, right? And I, you know, it's, it's the ring of gaijis. What will people do when they are unseen? When they are unseen, they will try to help their friends. Or they'll just make mistakes. But I, look, I, I agree with you that one of the things that journalism do is they, 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 they are a check on corruption and self-dealing and old boy networks and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we focus so much on the corruption of old boy networks and smoke-filled rooms, and we don't focus enough on the groupthink of old boy networks and smoke-filled rooms. And journalists, by saying, you know, are you really sure you want to put the bridge there? I mean, I know it's next to the Arby's, but, like, uh, I, I talked to a civil engineer who says it's not a great idea or whatever. It could have been a perfectly well-intentioned decision to put the bridge where they want to put it, but it's good to have some true squatter in there just asking questions. My old boss, Bill Salmon, uh, used to, uh, he had a great phrase. Uh, he used the skunk at the garden party. Uh, the newsman or newswoman is the skunk at the garden party. Everything is, everybody's agreed. Everybody's, oh, yes, this is all very good, very good, very good. And then we show up and say, eh, I don't know. What about that? What about this? Not everybody's cut out for this work. Uh, I remember the mantra from many, many Republicans in 2015, 2016 was, oh, you'll come around. Oh, you'll come around on Trump. You'll come around. And it's like, but that's not my job. My job is not to come around. My job is to annoy, right? My, my job is to vex, uh, hopefully in an entertaining way, hopefully in a fair-minded way, hopefully in a way that's generous of spirit. But no, my job is not to come around. My job is to stay out. Uh, and you have to, to be a good journalist. You have to be comfortable in that space. And you have to be comfortable with saying unpopular things. And this is, of course, why news organizations have to defend their people. They have to stick with their people and they have to back them up and they have to be there because you, it is, we tend to think, I, 
the, the temptation for everyone is to believe that the way that you view the world is the popular way. The way you see the world is really what everybody likes. Um, it's particularly hard for conservatives to remember that most of the things, a lot of the things that conservatives want and talk about are really unpopular, mm -hmm. right? We say that freedom of speech is popular. It isn't. Uh, we say that freedom of No, these things are not popular. That's, in fact, why they had to be put down in the Bill of Rights, because right. the, they knew, like, uh, they'll definitely come for that one. Oh, that, oh, guns. Yep, put that one down. So these things, and conservatives, I think, like most movements or anything, became victims of their own success. The conservatives so flipped American politics mm -hmm. that by the end of the 20th century, the Democratic president had to substantially align, Bill Clinton had to substantially align himself with a worldview that to Lyndon Johnson would have been an anathema, right? The era of big government is over. What the hell are you talking about? And, um, you know, Clinton was lying about a lot of it and whatever, whatever. But conservatives were really successful in a lot of different ways about a lot of different things. And they forgot along the way that persuasion was part of this and necessary. And the anger that was directed at me for my analysis of the 2016 and 2020 elections, I mean, come on, guys. Uh, people who, if you, if you think that the problem for Donald Trump in 2020 was that I was uh, down on his chances to carry Georgia and Arizona, uh, and that I was skeptical about his, that I said that he was a long shot to win, if you think that was the problem, you were not paying attention. Yeah, so like I, I, and this is more punditry than it is journalism stuff. But I remember talking about this: the, the sort of group thing can become can get scaled up, right? And mm -hmm. one of the best examples of this was when I remember Ted Cruz in twenty, whatever that I think it was twenty thirteen, the shutdown, uh, where he's he says, I saw him say on Fox a half dozen times, you know, one form or another, look, you know, everywhere I go. Obamacare is unpopular. Every audience I talk to says, you know, Obamacare is unpopular. And I was like, yeah, like if you're talking to <laughs> CPAC and the Republican Club of, of, of Lubbock, Texas, of course, you know, everywhere. Ted Cruz does not talk to conservative audiences that fundamentally disagree with him. And, and that's fine as an electoral strategy to work your base and get elected, but you can't extrapolate from that the argument that the people all agree with you and that, that, that you have the people on your side. And part of the problem with the whole Trumpian fake news stuff and only go to the sources that you like is it gives people the misperception that the people are on their side because you never hear the other arguments, right? And the only arguments you do hear are the nut picking, let's take the dumbest thing AOC has said or the dumbest thing that, you know, uh, someone at the nation has written. And you say, see, this is what Democrats are saying. Of course, the American people are against it. Now, of course, the American people are against defund the police. You know, but and, th and this is a problem that the, that the MSNBC crowd gets into is they only listen to people who agree with them and who don't think defund the police is a, just a mind bogglingly, ass achingly stupid <laughs> idea. <laughs> and, um, and so you get these two. Factions that are so online that only get reinforced by either the worst people on their own side or the worst people on the other side, and they end up looking like caricatures of themselves because 
That's what characters are. They're exaggerations of the underlying positions to the point where it becomes parody. So you can't have the particularly, what did you say, ass-achingly stupid yeah. uh, uh, world political world that we live in uh, without the double whammy of our dumb primary system combined with the siloed media, right? Uh, what does it take? So, so Ted Cruz is a great example. Ted Cruz is a very smart person uh, who is very well-educated and very experienced. Um, Ted Cruz started out figuring that he could play Fox, right? I can play the right-wing media. I can, I can, I can play this one. Um, and where does he end up begging Tucker Carlson's forgiveness for having referred to people who smashed in the windows at the Capitol and, and were with uh, uh, trying to hang Mike Pence as terrorists, right? Oh, please forgive. I'm so terribly sorry. I'm so terribly sorry. Because what did he know? He knew that the primary voters that matter to him, whether it's for Senate reelection uh, or for another presidential run, they ain't watching ABC World News tonight, right? They're watching the 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 uh, the overlay between the primary electorate and the corresponding media outlet gives those outlets too much power. Rachel Maddow had too much power inside the Democratic Party. Tucker Carlson has too much power inside the Republican Party. That's not good, and it can only happen when you have the silo where you have a dumb primary system and then a media landscape that lines up over the, uh, over that, that puts the, that puts, stacks the chips tall in those spaces. I just want to give, it's, it's a little, it's a little bit of a non sequitur, but I just thought it was so funny, which is a big theme in your book. There's this, um, the narrow casting versus broadcasting thing, which you alluded to at the beginning. Um, one of my weird things that I'm interested in is planting more trees. It's sort of another one of these like like uh, artificial reefs. I'm just interested in it. And so I saw on uh, the New York Times podcast, The Daily, which I try to avoid because as longtime listeners know, Michael Barbero's style just drives me crazy. Um, it's like he's recording a podcast while dealing with the fact that he ate bad clams the night before. But um, uh, he... Uh, so there is this piece, I guess, in the magazine about this movement to plant a trillion trees worldwide, which I think sounds like a great idea. I'm all in favor. Of it. Cool. I, but I want to hear more about it because apparently there's like some overselling of it and overhyping of it. And like they're not really planting trees or planting seeds or seedlings and yada, yada, yada. So I listened to it. So because it was the long read thing, which they do on weekends, the author of the piece does a little quick intro and then they have a professional read the thing. And in his intro, it's like 10 seconds in, he says... Something I'm, I'm only rough, barely paraphrasing. Many listeners concerned about climate change might feel guilty when they are purchasing yoga mats, cannabis oils, or home wood for wood burning pizza ovens because of their Who among us, yeah, their effect on climate change, and like the idea that like this summarizes the kind of people like I like if I were doing that piece I'd be talking about those of you who are like buying you know F150 trucks or yep. you know mahogany whatever you know like like I could see that argument but the just sort of the nicheness of the those sort of that sort of those sort of shibboleths about these are the products 
that good and decent people worried about climate change buy um, because they involve buying wood or have a carbon footprint or something, I thought was just such an interesting tell about who they know their audience is because they do audience research. It's sort of like you, the American you, on or the My Pillow ads on Fox. You can tell a lot by by a lot of media outlets by the ads that they run because they are selling data about who's watching or listening. Well, and, and one of the things I say in the book, of course, is uh, remember that if you are not paying for your news, uh, you are not the consumer. You are the product, right? You are what your eyeballs and your attention are what this company is selling. Right. So they want to keep your attention, which is why everybody should subscribe to the dispatch forthwith. Uh, but the when you were growing up in New York, you could have said to somebody in 1980 that this guy was a New York Post guy, a New York Daily News guy or a New York Times guy. For sure. And people would know what you meant. Right. They would know what you meant. So are you an elite? Uh, yes or no. If you're not an elite, are you right leaning or are you left leaning? Right? Are you more new Daily News or are you more New York Times or uh, New York Post? How are you coming down on this? And in a lot of America, where there used to be multiple newspapers, if you were in Charleston, West Virginia, were you a Daily Mail or were you the Gazette? And it was part of your identity and who you are. So I'm not saying that part's new, but what is new is the intensity with which people attach themselves to these outlets. Being a Times subscriber is and the times has a uh thing which is like i forget what it's called but it's like what your stories what stories you read say about you so when i get i read the i read the new york i subscribe to the new york times i read the new york times every day it's a great newspaper uh and so do i with the wall street journal uh the washington post well anyway uh <laughs> the i i do subscribe uh the but the times has this little widget that says like click here and we'll tell you who you are based on the stories that you've read and i of course have a different job than most people and it's like well this would say i'm a political obsessive freak because you know 90 percent of the stories are work-related stories that i'm reading to be up to speed on what i do vocationally but the degree to which uh you know so i rely on the work of the Andre Mir, the journalist, the media scholar, and, you know, he coined the term post-journalism to talk about what happened. And post-journalism used to be, journalism was, we have information, we have it up here, and we're going to let it down to you people. We're going to put it down to the people. We have all the information, you want it, and we're going to make money by giving it to you. That's how we're going to do this. And it was a top-down experience. Now, in post-journalism, it's bottom-up. You have a feeling, and we're going to match it. We're going to find a way to match your feeling to create a strong emotional connection to you. And in an atomized media space, what was a top-down is now bottom-up driven. What do we think people want to hear about right now? And a big part of this is technological. we were in the before times, you didn't really know what people wanted and you didn't know how a story was doing, right? You didn't know whether this had been a well, if you wrote a story for National Review, you didn't know. The only, you could tell if there were a bunch of letters to the editor about it, right? If people were writing in about it uh, or if people you knew mentioned it to you, but you didn't really know, right? If you, if it was, uh, what did you call it? 
uh, NRODT, National Review on Dead Tree, yeah. I believe was the, was the term uh, for the magazine. Yeah. <laughs> but you didn't know whether it was a smash hit or not. Um, now we know minute by minute, click by click, second by second, what do people like and what do they want? And the temptation among not just news organizations to do it, but among right individual writers to do it uh, is is profound and hard to resist. I talk about you know in the Washington Post they have the tote board in the newsroom they have the monitors up on the wall you can see what's clicking and you're like should I write a thoughtful balanced piece about how life is complicated and this issue is is interesting as I watch Jen Rubin's latest like. Uh, all Trump supporters are the worst and blah, 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 you know, and, and the vitriol is, is climbing the ladder. Are what do you, what is the, I, I'm not saying a, a lot that the post reporters are reporters anywhere. This is the, or that this is in some way specific to the post. It would take a lot of character to resist that entirely, right? It would take a lot of character to, especially if you're starting out and you want to win and you want a job, you know, I have done wrong almost everything that I criticize in this book, in my career, in one way or another, at one time or another, I have been guilty of almost everything, I'm sure, that I identify in this book. When you are young, it is very, very hard to be kind uh, in your writing. When you're young, it is very, very hard to really be humane as you talk about these things. It's very challenging, but it's even more challenging when instead of good editing, what you get is a tote board that says, number one with a bullet is this crappy, mean-spirited, half-truth garbage. Uh, it, and, and that makes it really tough. And that's why, and not to make it a testimonial, but that's why uh, the dispatch is important. And that's why things like that are important because we have to, we as news consumers have to be willing to pay for and accept. Uh, we have to pay for high quality news, but we also have to accept that it will not please us all the time. I, as I say in the book, if what if the if the news that you're reading, if you if if you're comfortable with everything that you read, you are doing it wrong. If you're comfortable with everything you see and read and you feel that you are validated, uh, you need to check yourself. And you better go and if you're a conservative, you better be listening to NPR. If you're a liberal, you better be checking out Whatever, go check it out, right? You have to have varied inputs. And I understand that people are busy and that they don't have time and I don't want them. You know, my one of the things I say is, uh, I don't know how much uh, the right increment uh, of news to consume in a day is, but it's definitely not 24 hours. 24 hours is definitely not the correct amount of news to consume in a day. Um, and I know that people are busy and they don't have time to re- read and consume news like you and I do, because this is what we, it's a big part of our jobs. Uh, in the TV business, they call it being read in, uh, is, is a big part of all of that stuff. Uh, but even, I guess I'll put it this way. Let's say you only had an hour a day that you were going to commit to the news, right? You were going to read a little in the morning and then maybe you're going to watch something in the evening. Well, if that's all you have, you better be really, really certain that what you're getting is really, really good. Uh, the less time you have to devote to news, the higher the quality of that news had better be. So it's funny. Uh, this is something Steve and I talk about a lot. And Steve is Steve Hayes, co-founder of the Dispatch, CEO, yada yada yada. Um, I just never Noted know how many, like, how many like uh, 
you know, you're probably flooding this podcast with first time listeners. So I have to like explain some of these, but, um, <laughs> Steve is, um, is a Columbia journalism school graduate. And um, I try, I try to always block that out in my mind. I love making fun of him about it. And, um, <laughs> and he is much more than me and maybe even more than you really interested in the granular stuff about the media, about the business of the media. That's why he's the CEO and I am not. Or I should put it this way. It's one of the reasons why he's the CEO and I am not. <laughs> and um, part of the reason we do the morning dispatch the way we do, and the part of the reason why we almost never publish anything after um, you know, noon, um, we don't like, we, 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 we're trying to get outside the, the pace of the clickbait media universe. You know, So we have set times for newsletters. But the stuff we post on the website, unless we have some story that we feel we've got to get out there right away, and those cases are few and far between, we don't do it. Because one of the things that people say in a lot of research about this is that they want to feel like they've done their duty in reading the news, yes. and they don't want to have to come back to it all the time. And the people who want to come back to it all the time probably aren't subscribing to the dispatch anyway. They're probably, or they're in the business, but they're probably addicted to the cable news stuff. And one of the reasons why we do the morning dispatch the way we do it is we want to give people, smart, busy people who are interested and have a certain sense of civic obligation about being informed, but we want to give them a product that makes them feel like, okay, I know what's going on. Now I can go about my business. And it's a very deliberate strategy. And I think it's working. It's a popular product. And I hate calling it a product, but, you know, it is what it is. It is. It's good. The business... I love the news business. I, I think of myself as part of the news business more than I do as a, a journalist, mm-hmm. right? That somehow that there is some journalism that is separate and apart from the news business. That's not good for either side, right? This is a business and the market is an important corrective for all kinds of stuff. And I want it to make money. I want it to be profitable. I need it to be profitable, right? It's important that it be profitable because if it ain't, we're the first uh, to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, my kids are too smart. They're going to get into good schools. I This is important. Uh, but I, I have in my mind, I don't know if I've ever told you about this, but I always have in my mind uh, a fictional character for whom I am working, uh, who, the product that I produce that I have in mind. He is a owner of a hardware store. Over, over the years, his story has become more detailed in my mind. <laughs> he, own, he owns a, an Ace True Value hardware store uh, in like Terre Haute, Indiana. Uh, he's successful. They've gotten a little equipment rental business going on the side. Uh, he's got a, a lovely family uh, and they're doing great. Uh, and he feels a patriotic obligation to be up to date. And he kind of enjoys it too. He, he pays a little attention to politics. He pays a little attention to this stuff. Certainly he reads the Terre Haute Bugle or whatever the newspaper is in Terre Haute. Uh, but he is engaged. He, he feels a civic obligation. I write for him, right? I write for him. The person who says, I don't have that much time and I don't pretend to have all of the knowledge in the world. Please tell me what I need to know. When I write my uh, weekly politics note for the dispatch, I am not writing that with an eye toward what people, I, I, don't, I don't want to, I'm not writing for people who already know everything and I am trying to do some air, area bat, uh, what, uh, what do you call it for, uh, stunt flying, right? I'm not trying to take the biplane upside down to prove to people who have already read 
the same stuff I have, that I'm different from them. I want to be of service to this guy and the, and the men and women like him around the country so that they can be better citizens. And I know it's corny, but I swear it's true. You've known me for a long time. I want my work to be redeemed by the fact that it is useful for people to be better citizens, to vote better, to know better, to be more engaged in what's going on. That is, you know, to, to hold people to account is important. Uh, that's not the part of journalism that I've mostly ended up being in. I did a lot of that as a young reporter and enjoyed it. <laughs> I was in, definitely enjoyed spraying skunk fumes at garden parties and had a lot of fun doing that stuff and got some pretty big scalps. Uh, and it was all cool. But the part of journalism I have ended up in is political analysis uh, and election forecasting. And I love it. And I, I want to do it so that that Ace Hardware Store owner uh, and all of the Ace Hardware Store owners out there uh, can be better citizens and better participants. And if what you're doing in journalism isn't in service of some patriotic good for the, you know, for fellow love of your of your countrymen and countrywomen, then you are messing up and you got to get right. Get some religion, folks. I think that's probably as good a place as any for us to uh, <laughs> uh, drop the mic on this one. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for doing this. Everybody, please, if there were two ways I could separate people from their hard-earned, and I know it's hard-earned money, the first would be to subscribe to The Dispatch, and the second would be to buy Broken News by Chris Thierry. Oh. Well, thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for creating a space where people can do patriotically-minded journalism. I was going to say you're welcome, but that sounded like such a douchey thing to say. <laughs> so uh, I'll just Enjoy say, it. You're welcome. Uh, there you go. It's fine. Thank you. Thank you for signing up. And again, I've never been a reporter guy at all, really. I mean, I do, I've done my sort of, let's drop Jonah someplace and have him make fun of it kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, but I've, got, I've had this newfound or late in life, you know, rediscovery and appreciation for, you know, the importance of and the costs of doing real reporting and real journalism. And we are delighted to have you as part of the family. So amen. Amen. All right. So that's the, uh, the conversation. Um, seriously, you know, you guys know I'm a big fan of Chris's and I'm a big fan of the book and, um, and I'm grateful to him for coming on and spending so much time with us. And, um, uh, you should go out and get it. And, I will see you next time. This just in. No, you won't. This is a podcast.